Welcome to Diet Culture Dropout. Are you ready to drop out of the $72 billion narrative that you've been sold? Diet culture sells us lies, unattainable beauty standards, the narrative that your body's inadequate, and dictates how you should define your health. It is pervasive, oppressive, and damaging to all areas of our health. By dropping out of diet culture, we can together celebrate all bodies, work towards dismantling weight stigma, and stop the transgenerational trauma of body shame and dieting. I'm your host, Athena Brown, a non-diet and body-inclusive registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, yoga teacher, and a mom of two strong-willed daughters. My passion is helping people heal their relationship with their body and food so they can live a full life without restrictions, size limits, or food rules. I also desperately want to change the narrative for our kids so they can be the first generation that never diets, has resilience in our body-obsessed world, and a positive relationship with food. This podcast is a safe space for exploration, mindful moments, and take-home practices for anyone looking to find food peace and body liberation. Please remember that this is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice from your primary care provider, therapist, or registered dietitian. I am so happy you're here. I want you to know that wherever you are in your food and body peace journey, that there is room at this table for you. You are so worthy, just as you are right now. Right, so welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. We have a special guest today with a really important topic, and I'm really excited to talk with her about it. So we have Athena Brown, registered dietitian, and really that your podcast, Diet Culture Dropout, loves talking about these topics. I, I believe you love working with moms, and so we're going to be talking all things intuitive eating, parenting. Hi, trying to raise an intuitive eater or return to intuitive eating. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored. Yeah. So let's, we're going to get into some really great questions and topics, but before then, I'd love to just learn more about you, your story, how you came to be doing this work. Of course. Thank you. So like Sean said, my name is Athena Brown. My pronouns are she and her, and I am a non-diet body-inclusive dietitian. I'm located in Ontario, Canada, so in somewhat of a rural area. I know Toronto is kind of the big city landmark for a lot of people, so two hours east of there. And I've been practicing dietetics for about 10 years, and most of my experience has been in primary care and long-term care, and was very much a generalist saw babies to geriatrics and lots of, lots of conditions. And it was through working with clients that so many of their stories related back to their strong desire to fix or change their bodies. 
and having this underlying poor body image and just this wishful thinking from diet culture that if they could just change their body, you know, they could live their best life, be happy, be loved, be accepted. So many people had these food fears and engaged in disordered eating, had super poor relationships with food in their bodies. And then this created this like cyclical pattern where, you know, they were a byproduct of their you know, parents and family. And then with their kids, it was kind of constantly passed on. So these deep rooted behaviors and narrative just kept strong in families. So it really didn't matter that I was talking about high fiber diet or managing blood sugars or meal planning when there was so much disordered eating happening and this anxiety around food and their bodies was never really being addressed, right? Stepping on the scale would just shatter them for days, weeks on ends. And to me, this seemed so much more important. This was like more of the root problem that needed to be explored. And the surface-based nutrition was just a waste of time. And I actually wanted to help people not (laughs) further push them down that disordered eating line. So I kind of changed my practice, I'd say pretty solidly in the last like six years or so, I engaged in lots of professional development or in eating disorders and on diet, health at every size, became a certified intuitive eating counselor. And that perspective really changed. And then I had my two, my two kids. So reflecting back on my own disordered eating relationship, I really want this for them. So they are a big motivation for my work. And, you know, after having them, this really ramped up this desire to practice in a different way. So I left my full-time comfortable government job in September, started my own private practice, and I'm working with people that really light my heart up and I feel I'm doing more important work. So it makes me more aligned with my values. Yeah. Yeah. How, well, so you said you basically answered my question, but like, yeah, how, how, how do you like it so far? Cause there's challenges going off on your yeah, own too. Of course. So it was definitely really scary, but it's been good. I've had, you know, so many connections that I've kind of built new relationships, especially with different therapists. I have, you know, naturopathic doctors that I can refer to that I know are going to be a safe choice for my clients. And It's been really fun and energizing and also lots of time and energy sucking, but it's Mm -hmm. it's good. I love it. I wouldn't want it any other way. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. And you kind of touched on like a history of a poor relationship with food. How, how did that sort of meld into your professional journey? Was that something you kind of healed up first or like, what did that look like when you found sort of health at every size and intuitive eating? Yeah. So I think most of my disordered relationship with food and my body would have been in high school. I was a pretty high level like dancer, not that my dance environment was contributing to that. It probably did like have some sprinkles of that, but it was more kind of in high school friendships, social media was kind of emerging just that comparative nature narrative that happens. Mm -hmm. And I think nutrition my, my dad also had like a very early heart attack too. He was in his forties. There's a lot of genetics there, but I kind of took it upon myself that I was like going to save my family and that, you know, all of the people that needed saving <laughs> was kind of why I went into dietetics, super like, yeah, inappropriate healthist view, you know, was not aware of my thin privilege, all of those things. And 
that's kind of, you know, dietetic training in Ontario anyways, is very much, there's zero screening for disordered eating. We, we rarely even talk about it and get education around it. So it was like a, a problematic cycle there, but I guess it was through more of university being aligned with new people, new experiences and finding more joy in my life outside of kind of that control piece. And then kind of be introduced after, like once I started practicing as a dietitian, Lindo Bacon was actually the first person I heard speak about health at every size at an eating disorder conference. And I remember sitting there just crying in my seat being like, I have done so much harm to my clients. And then that kind of light bulb turned on and a lot of the unpacking began. Fiona Sutherland is another huge mentor that I completely submerged myself in her work and a lot of other Sonia Renee Taylor. There's, there's so many of them that kind of kept pushing me down this, this rabbit hole, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it was kind of, yeah, kind of mostly healed up maybe your own relationship with food prior, but then like, I would imagine there might've even been more healing that came as well. Yes, definitely. And I think now when I reflect back on it, I was raised as an intuitive eater. I didn't grow up in like a dieting family you know, my mom did have some body image issues that like, I remember now, but it was never, food was never a morality thing for me. So I think I was an intuitive eater and then I kind of got derailed a bit in like high school and university. And then I kind of getting back to that. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. sort of, well, I guess, yeah, my, mine was more like similar timeline, although it takes a while professionally to kind of like find your voice and yeah, I left my healthcare job, I guess it's mm-hmm. a little over a year ago now. So, okay, but yeah, so always fun to hear how people came to this work. So, so we're going to talk about some of the, like just learning and, and, or practicing intuitive eating as a parent. And I, I'd love to, cause this is something that, you know, I know a lot of people struggle with that I've worked with, or even there's so many different layers to this, but definitely like, I think as you take on this journey and you start to unlearn some of what diet culture teaches us, there can be kind of like you said, when you're listening to that talk, like a lot of shame and a lot of pain about like, oh, I caused harm, particularly to my kids. It's like the worst thing in the world to feel like you've caused harm to your kids. So I'd love to just dive in and kind of talk about some of the challenges that you've seen kind of raising an intuitive eater maybe even with a focus on as you're actively working on it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is such a great question. And I think for anyone in this scenario, like as much (laughs) self-compassion being sent to your way, because it it is really challenging. And I think it's such a interesting time when we have kids, how like reparenting we have to do and unpacking of our own kind of beliefs and understandings of things. So I'll maybe start by just encouraging people that like at any point in the continuum is a great time to learn about intuitive eating. So don't feel like, yeah, my kid's 17 years old. Like that's okay. Like there can Mm -hmm. be some repair and you can always start somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's a lot of people in that boat. Yeah. So, and as well, like there's no right way to intuitive eating. There's no like one end point. It's not like aha moment where you're just there kind of thing. So maybe I'll start by kind of defining intuitive eating if that's okay. And mm-hmm. then kind of go into some ideas and challenges because yeah. there's, there's lots of challenges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. basically intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework 
there's 10 principles. It's really trying to get you to improve that introceptive awareness. So 90% of our body signals come from below the head up and 10% from the head down. And most of the time we live in our head and we become disassociated or these signals tend to kind of turn down or get silenced. Mm-hmm. So the principles work on either increasing, you know, your awareness to them or decreasing barriers that are kind of blocking your ability to hear them. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, there's kind of that extra layer, I believe as a challenge, because when you're working through these things, you may get really triggered when you see maybe some past behaviors of yourself and your child, or maybe your child really, you know, loving that ice cream or that brownie or whatever, that's maybe like triggering you. Right. So you really recognize how that food can be very emotional, right? And maybe how loud and pronounced that dieting narrative was for you growing up and having more understanding of how diet culture is maybe on the daily impacting you. Mm -hmm. So you want to start with some challenges first? (laughs) Yes, I do. You already kind of touched on some, but yes, I'd love to hear. Yes. What, what some of people are struggling with. So again, diet culture is everywhere. It's a $72 billion industry. The last, you know, stat I saw about that. It's very loud. It's very shiny. It's very sneaky. Another part with our kids is like, we cannot control all of the environments. You know, you may be Mm -hmm. putting some really great efforts in home. Maybe you're diversifying your TV shows, your kids' toys, like all of that from like a body neutrality, body diversity place. But the second they step out the door, you know, that's, You can't, you can't have them in a bubble always. Right. And everyone, every human is impacted, whether it's your pediatrician, your dentist, your soccer coach, the teachers, they're all influenced by diet culture. So it's so challenging because you're not sure where the next message is kind of, kind of pop up from, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Another challenge is nutrition is a topic that everyone kind of feels this affinity or, kind of maybe feel like they're an expert on, right? So, so many practitioners who speak to this point, maybe give interventions with maybe very little education or awareness, right? We have really poor eating disorder, disordered screening and actual clinical training. So the vast majority of healthcare workers aren't always asking those important questions. And Mm -hmm. I know in my program, I kind of shared already, but that was not really a topic we talked about or spent a lot of time, which is wild because there's usually a room full of those types of people (laughs) learning the skills to be a dietitian, right? Yeah. Well, and also it's like eating disorders and disordered eating's all in this continuum. And there's so much of that like middle ground that, you know, is really hard to like, even with the skills, although we definitely need to be doing the training, it's like, even with the nuanced skills that I have sometimes it's like I can't know for sure how you're thinking about this <laughs> and it's it's so cha- challenging course. yeah 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 mm-hmm. I had a, a conversation yesterday with a family doctor just trying to collaborate on like a pediatric case of an eating disorder and I just kind of like <sighs> I at, was sharing kind of my concerns and stuff and she was like well I knew exactly who you're talking about because she is my only eating disorder case I don't have any eating disorders. And I was just like, 
because you're not screening like yeah, you're not asking those right. questions oh no definitely do so I didn't get yeah, into unless it unless you have a caseload like, of like two <laughs> and maybe it's no, your only one thousands. and you don't <laughs> right yeah yeah, oh, yeah. No. So, so even you know the best meaning you know family doctors are, are still missing this too right mm-hmm. and then a lot of like what we know to be true again air quoting there around food nutrition is disordered eating behaviors that have been normalized so it's really hard again as a parent to know what to do what to way to properly even feed your baby beginning you know or like yes. how you introduce certain foods into the diet there's so, so much like varied information about that. Like it's yeah. incredible. <laughs> Even yeah. doing what I do and having some, you know, nutrition training. I mean, I, I've sought some out. It's still like, wait a minute. <laughs> what? Sure. You, and yeah. you get these like really dogmatic views of like, you need to have this or you need to have this. And yeah. Yeah. Stressful. And like, hello, parent guilt infliction <laughs> everywhere at every angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another challenge being like schools, obviously the lessons, the curriculum is another big area. I know in Ontario, Mm -hmm. it's not really required to do like heights and weights. I think more present in the U S and in some of the States. In schools? Yeah. Yeah. I know it's getting weighted and stuff. I actually don't know. Yikes. It's, I haven't delved okay. into that world yet. I'm about to start this fall with school. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I know I've yeah. heard like anecdotal stories here and there of like, well, let's put yes. the BMI in the report card. And you're like, what? But yes. I didn't think yeah. that persisted, but I could be wrong. But yeah, yeah, I think at some schools it's like required, required again, air quoting, not again, I don't have that lived experience, but heard from other like US-based colleagues and blog posts of yeah, it being kind of mandatory and getting their heights and weights taken and, you know, compared and stuff. But regardless, curriculum examples in Ontario, my, my daughter's in JK and, you know, some of the lessons she's learning about good and bad foods have already like started and just now having conversations with the teacher and I pulled up the curriculum, you know, it's very fluffy, but it's within like the examples and like the lesson plan ideas that are like super problematic. So that's kindergarten already kind of starting that dichotomous language. Mm -hmm. And you said that you talked, were you like already talking to the teacher and saying, Hey, let's have a discussion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had a couple of discussions again, it was just Easter. It came up again with like Lent and like giving up food. And it's like, why are we talking about food <laughs> like mm-hmm. kind of thing? So it's actually yeah. transpiring into like a school-wide education thing. And the principals were really understanding kind of my perspective as a clinician, but also really, you know, open to making some changes and modifications. So I think that was really positive experience for sure. Nice. And then there's also like the lunchtime monitors. I don't know if all of the school's listeners have that, but generally they're like other students or teachers, right. That are maybe suggesting certain foods before rules around food or mm-hmm. lunches to be at X time. This con- constitutes as a healthy snack versus an unhealthy snack. Mm-hmm. All of those kind of conversations you aren't necessarily part of as a, a as a parent, right? Mm, yeah. And then I got two more. So yeah, media okay. obviously is a big one. So much false information. We know that Photoshop is being used and you know, it's the highlight reel and there's so much fat phobia, body shaming, 
actual accounts that teach how to have an eating disorder, disordered eating. So media literacy obviously is a big topic um, Mm -hmm. for kids, teens, especially too. And then the last challenge is for parents, right? When they see their kids engaging in that food, maybe really getting excited or eating again, air quote, too much of something, it really entices those difficult feelings for a parent, you know, your thought patterns, your worst case scenarios. So it can be hard to kind of play it cool to, you know, give that space of exploring foods and, and not worrying about health and growth and, you know, some of those valid reasons you have, but I think diet culture has really exploded that narrative that, you know, we have to be so restrictive and controlling of our kids eating. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So lots of challenges, lots to work, (laughs) lots to work against. (laughs) And although I, I will in the media piece is really an important one. And it made me think that there is some data that like, and maybe you're familiar. It's been a bit since I've looked at this research, but like, it's like about media literacy and, and really kind of having some, like, I think it was like a cognitive dissonance training where it's, which is our fancy term for just helping people to understand that, like, that is not reality. And it can be empowering, but anyway, Mm -hmm. and it it was like an eating disorder prevention program employed in Mm -hmm. schools. But that's awesome. Yeah. But there's a lot, a lot to work with a lot to, to kind of combat. So yeah. What, I guess maybe broadly, we can talk about some of the things that people can do, particularly, I know you and I talked before about an example that I've been asked before is like, what if I'm seeing my child struggle with habits that are concerning to me? I'm worried I taught them these habits. They might be sneaking food or hoarding food or eating food Mm -hmm. at night in their bed, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what to do in that situation? Um, I think parent guilt is is so hard to deal with such negative, toxic self-talk. So again, I often, this comes up a lot for a lot of parents I work with too. I'm going to share a story of it coming up with my daughter coming up, but just really reminding you that, you know, you're not the only person that's experiencing this and what you've maybe taught or instilled in your child in terms of nutrition messaging. Of course, you were acting from a place of love. You're not trying to deliberately cause harm. No parent does. And it makes a lot of sense why you, you chose that route or that food limit or that food rule, because you've been primed so much from endless conditioning to fear food, to restrict, to have more willpower, you know, as the answer. But we know that this is not evidence-based. It's not very intuitive for most kids. And uh, there's a lot of challenges that can come from that. So self-compassion, self-compassion as much as we can. So I guess in terms of what to do 101, when your, your kids like hoarding or sneaking food, this is also very common for kids to do. So I think what to do in that moment, you catch your kid. I caught my kid the other day, sneaking fruit roll-ups in the closet (laughs) and First up, take a breath, <laughs> attempt to, you know, center, ground yourself. And then kind of step two is recognizing what this is stirring up for you. What are these worst case scenarios that are going through your head? Taking a pause. <laughs> I know this is very challenging to reflect. Like, are you seeing some of yourself, your food and body relationship, you know, kind of being transferred onto your child here? And then like trying to remind yourself what the long-term goal is 
of raising an intuitive eater, right? Is to neutralize this food for them to have a healthy relationship with it. And one day of eating again, does not cause weight gain, does not cause nutrition deficiencies or these like worst case scenarios, probably playing in the head (laughs) going on. And usually this behavior happens because this food has been elevated, restricted, or not given an opportunity to fully explore. So is a form of restriction. So as best as you can try not explode, make a big scene, try and be really cool, calm, and maybe using language like, oh, I see you're eating the fruit roll up. Do you want to come with mom, come to the table and let's eat it together kind of thing. And you must in that moment, eat it together. And again, this is telling your child that it's okay. It's okay that you're eating this food. It's okay that it caught you. It's okay for this food to be consumed and eaten together. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when you're sitting down at kind of your centralized place, maybe where you eat food in the home, you know, talking about the food exploring it, the color, taste, smell, what do you love about this experience? Right. And then maybe with time asking, like, why do you feel you can't eat this together or tell mom what's going on or that you wanted this food kind of trying to make this like a safe as possible space to be curious, to Mm -hmm. talk gently and to explore. Mm -hmm. And then in that moment, it's really important that you make a plan for this food, so the fruit roll-ups, when are we having it next? So it should be kind of within the next 24 hours, I would suggest. So whether it's going to be afternoon snack, dessert, dinner, whatever, and then you have to follow through with that. Have to. And then moving forward, making that an option moving forward consistently. So over time, that habituation, that neutralization, that's principle number three, making peace with food will happen over time once the food becomes just a regular food that's an option as something else is type thing. Mm -hmm. So it is very normal. And like I said, granola bars was the first time I caught my daughter at three and a half, like sneaking. And Mm -hmm. then the other week it was fruit roll-ups. And these were foods that, yeah, I traditionally was not giving her. I kind of forgot about fruit roll-ups until she started going to school and comparing lunches. And mm-hmm. I just, I hadn't eaten them since I was in elementary school. So, yeah. you know, I can understand they're kind of the cool new snack type thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So just kind of emphasizing too, it's common. This isn't, you witness your kid doing this and this is like a binge eating problem. Um, and mm-hmm. the food is really awesome and fun at that age, right? They make it really attractive with the colors and the marketing and the shapes and all of that. So yeah, um, just, I guess, reframing our understanding of the scenario. Mm-hmm. Is that helpful? It is helpful. And I have a follow. Well, I have, actually have a follow-up question about like the planning to have it within 24 hours. Is that like a discussion you have with the kid to just sort of like normalize, like, and normalize yeah. like food availability, basically, like. Yeah, we got it. We're gonna have it soon. Exactly, and Mm -hmm. asking them kind of like, when tomorrow do you want to have it? Type thing. So they're having some autonomy too in Mm -hmm. that choice Mm -hmm. selection. Yeah, Yeah. and my other follow up question is related to this concept of like, how much do you bring food these types of foods into the home? And and maybe it's different if you're noticing a behavior of like sneaking. There might be a different answer, but. I feel like there's a lot of opinions about like how much you're supposed to bring food into the home to learn intuitive eating. So what, I don't know, what would you say to that? I know that's kind of a broad question, but. Yeah. So I think if you are truly working through intuitive eating as a parent, you know, there's a section that is make peace with food. And 
I really work with clients to write down kind of what their fear foods are or those foods that get them a little on edge or they have some kind of parameters or rules around them. And then you, they themselves work through having that neutralizing it. Right. So I think Mm -hmm. for kids, again, it it is a really difficult answer because it depends on like how old the kid is. Right. Mm -hmm. So generally the recommendations are like after two is when you're having more like added sugars and more processed foods. In my case, I have a four and a half year old and an almost two year old. And that's impossible because I can't just slap the cupcake out of the two-year-old's hand when the four-year-old's eating it, you know? So I think it's, it's different for every family. And I think maybe like starting at a place with what foods you want to begin with. So for me, I have celiac disease. So dessert options are already pretty limited for me. I love ice cream. So ice cream is something that's always going to be in our house. That's always going to be an option. So that one's a food we've, we've worked through marshmallows at summertime. Like we have those, we have cookies. I really try and have an all foods fit mentality and really bringing that into the home too. It's been COVID. So it has been kind of weird in the sense of I'm still not really bringing my daughter grocery shopping. So like, she's also not seeing the abundance of options. So I guess just kind of pick and choosing what comes up for you, what you see to be fitting or part of a normal balanced variety diet for you um, is maybe a place to start something like pop, for instance. I don't really enjoy pop. It's not something me, my husband ever have. It's my family doesn't even really have it maybe except for like my father-in-law, but that's not really a food that we're neutralizing because it's a non often offered food type thing. So yeah. I don't know if that's answering your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. And I, I mean, I think, I guess my, and I guess more, I'm like double checking for myself too. Like I feel pretty yeah. mostly confident in like my relationship with food and how I parent around it. Although I would say mostly, I don't know. I think it's going to get more challenging. Our kids are actually a very similar age, like yours and mine. So I got four and a half and two. So, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, we don't like necessarily bring a lot of like, like we buy, we'll buy like cake from the store, but we'll usually buy like little bit smaller ones. You know, the ones that will maybe like that come in a plastic where it's like a smaller version. I don't have to cook the cake and it's delicious. And, and we have like, cookies up there right now but I just got like four they're like the crumble cookies they're so good and so those are there but it's it, it's very sporadic it's not necessarily like there's not really like a sweet type food that we always have except right. but I'm like that works for us and I, I think like sometimes mm-hmm. people get and even myself included like anxious about like what's the right thing it's like mm-hmm. that works for us because yeah. I, I don't at least yet see I do think when we do bring it in like they're pretty pumped to have it but like course, there's zero yeah. judgment about it and like there's yeah. no restriction about it but it once like the cake is split up into the pieces like once it's gone it's gone so I guess For sure yeah yeah the question is like I think a lot of people mm-hmm. struggle I understandably so with like just trusting what is right for us right and what mm-hmm. feels right for us and yeah. my sense is that they can decide, right? Like, absolutely. Yeah, they can. Yeah. They're born with these skills again, most mm-hmm. 99% of kids. Yeah. And I think where it gets a little bit more challenging is that school age, Christmas, yeah. Easter, Halloween, you know, those times. And I think those are good kind of like mini experiments for yourself too, to kind of how did Halloween go? Like, were you so anxious putting limits on foods? Were you trying to get rid of the Halloween? Like, what was your approach to how you manage that? Right. Right. 
and remembering that like candy can be bought and eaten at any time of the year, right? It was just Easter. Yeah. Mini eggs in Canada anyways are available <laughs> all the time. So, yeah. you know, it's not just this one experience. We should just be letting kids have it with the holidays because generally when it has been very limited and then we kind of blast with Halloween, it kind of maybe will trigger a lot of that desire mm-hmm. and that binge-like behaviors around candy when it's only something that's rarely consumed. And another point I do want to make too, is sometimes as parents, we're kind of maybe scooping out the ice cream or we're scooping out, you know, the portion. And we've all probably experienced that ourselves where it's maybe not enough. It didn't really quite satisfy you. Right. So I think that's another piece to it too, is some of my interventions with families when we're neutralizing food is two, three times a week provide that triggering food or whatever we're going to call it in a ridiculous volume kind of thing on the table with other things and really let them have like a feed of whatever they're choosing. And I think there's a lot of value in overeating cookies at times, overeating candy, how that makes your body feel. Mm-hmm. Again, with my daughter, I do these like mini, <laughs> mini eating experiments. I think last summer I'd always make lots of reels on them, but we did juice for, or she did juice. She was over at the neighbor's cottage or whatever. And she just kept serving her juice. And to this day, she still remembers, like she will set a limit to how much juice she can drink because she remembers like how that made her feel after Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. they have to have those experiences, right? Yes. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. I'm always amazed at, and that's where like, I, at least so far for us, it's worked for, for us to like bring in candy at Halloween, but I like really don't restrict it ever when I bring it in. Like, there's no, like you get this many I mean, maybe I guess occasionally we do like choose your pieces for the night or whatever, but, but even that it, I don't, at least the language I'm using doesn't feel too restrictive and they're not like fixated on it, but yeah, yeah like, that's great. But yeah, when just like leave it out and like I, my daughter multiple times have been like, this made my belly hurt, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. I can rest and I'll feel okay. But in like, I'm like, okay, yeah. good to know. Like, and she just notices and like no judgment. And she's like, and I don't know if she'll adapt next time, probably, but it's also like, we're just like, all right, good to know. <laughs> yep. And even like extrapolating this to other foods. So even like quoted healthy foods, I know sometimes parents feel like really proud when they like serve their kids ice cream and like half the ice cream bar is still there or whatever. Right. And they're just like, yay, they're being an intuitive eater, but this also goes towards healthy foods too. Right. If we put broccoli on their plate and they don't finish it all and they only have, you know, half of the portion or whatever, like they're still listening to their bodies, telling them to kind of stop too. So going yeah. kind of both ways with all types of foods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do have another follow-up question. I thought of too, in terms of the language we use to describe foods. Like, so some people talk yes. about, like, I would say like some people have talked about like treat foods and even that has like an element of like, Ooh, special occasion, but are there certain mm-hmm. languages that you would like recommend versus not? I know. Yeah. Yeah. So using food neutral language is kind of the overall, um, practice I'm Mm -hmm. encouraging. So calling the food by its name. So really Mm -hmm. not using the word treat. What is it? Is it candy? Is it ice cream? Is it broccoli? Is it edamame? Whatever. And really getting away from that dichotomous language. So those Mm -hmm. two ends, so good, bad, healthy, unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I know sometimes they say like weekend foods, weekday foods, Mm-hmm. Just calling the food by its name, right? Because once it's a treat, you know, if we look at that definition of treat, it's 
restrictive, like restrictive nature, rare. It's, it's all those things that are what we're trying to get away from it being, you know, yes. this rare, alluring thing. And to yeah, like so normalize, I've totally used that word. So like for anyone listening, they're like, oh no, I say that. Like, I think it's, it's okay. But I also hear what you're saying. And like, I, I sometimes when I say it, I'm like, eh, I should probably move away from that. <laughs> it's probably not that helpful. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I do it when I'm trying to motivate behavior. <laughs> that's not yes. ideal. And that's, <laughs> yeah. The other thing too, is really trying to remove food from that reward and yeah. being that constant emotional coping mechanism, right? Yes. So really trying to get it away from morality and mm-hmm. being, you know, oh, you're feeling sad. Let's get ice cream kind of thing. I'm not saying that we can't do that, but that continuous pairing right is how we develop those coping mechanisms, influence them over time. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of this really goes back to role modeling, right? As a parent. So you have to walk the walk as well too, right? You can't just be sitting there, you know, not saying good and bad foods and then you eating a completely different plate than your kid, right? Mm -hmm. Kids notice that they Mm -hmm. see that they are very smart and that, underdeveloped prefrontal cortex gets translated to them, right? If mom says bread is bad, you know, if I eat bread, I'm a bad person, you know, that's how they're taking it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. that in itself is super problematic, right? Yes. Had a consult with a client and kindergarten was the first time she started dieting. And it's like, ah, yeah. That is a long road of challenge. Yeah. So role modeling is kind of the biggest way you can practice this being those non, you know, that diet culture free space at the home where people are not engaging in dieting, practicing restrictions, doing those cleanse and fasts and challenges, providing, you know, that environment to support body diversity and be able to encourage, um, relationships towards their body how you even talk about your body speak about it too right Mm -hmm. Um, they're they're listening always Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah so the I mean one takeaway is like the best thing you can do to help them is to work on your own relationship with food and and I guess one of my questions too is like how is learning intuitive eating different based on age and I wonder if even how you talk about your own journey probably would be different based on age right like is that something Mm -hmm. that you've seen people like find value in because I'd imagine there's a lot of value in own kind of owning and saying like yeah mom's working on this too and I'm learning a lot too but you know I don't know yeah I could see that being maybe more helpful later on but maybe not maybe kids are smart so there's always I always encourage those conversations I think it's a really good lesson for your kid to know that you don't always know the best way of doing everything and I think Mm -hmm. like that's a great lesson for them to know that like sometimes we'll maybe set on one thing and it can change. It's flexible. So that's why I was kind of alluding to at the beginning where like there, it's always a good time to learn intuitive eating and like start it, you you know, kids are really malleable. So in terms of how it's being taught or learned based on age, I think more of the one-on-one work where you're really working through those 10 principles, seeking support, generally more for like teens and adults who already have those developed beliefs, behaviors, problematic relationship with food. That's more that kind of piece of it. There's that element of food morality, you know, they're aware of diet culture, that type Mm -hmm. of thing. They're chronic dieters, et cetera. That would be kind of more of that 
work and Mm -hmm. for kids, I think it's a lot more in that prevention side of things. So kids are born intuitive eaters. It's just trying to preserve this. So following the vision of responsibility. So Ellen Satter's work is really important here for kids. So defining feeding roles for parents and for kids. And this really helps preserve that self-regulation skill and leaves food just being food, right? We're not getting pressure to finish our plate. We're respecting our kids' fullness. We are not, I know when I was a child, I learned about, you know, being scared of food waste and kids in Africa or other countries. That's the guilt you're inflicting on them to eat whatever you want them to, right? Mm -hmm. Role modeling, like we said before, that narrative within the home around food and bodies and dieting, that language. Yeah. Yeah. That hungerfulness teaching, I think is, is kind of a complicated construct for kids to understand. So I think early ways of teaching this is using things like, what's your body telling you? Does it need more? Are you done? You know, check in with what it's, what it's telling you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when my daughter, you know, will come to the table, won't really eat a lot. I kind of, I'm not saying like, no, you have to finish whatever you have, but check in with your body. What's it telling you? And then just kind of reminder, we're not eating until afternoon snack or something like this. And then she'll, Mm -hmm. it's actually really cute. She'll kind of look down, have a little convo with her belly and, and then decide what she's doing. I think that's a little bit more tangible than like, are you full? Because it's like, what does that mean? Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. Like great questions to ask. And then just reminding them if they're younger kids, like just as a reminder, this is the next time we'll be eating. So. Yeah. Yeah. And there's going to be instances where they maybe I I say like, Oh, it looks like you miscalculated. You know, those are learning opportunities. Next time we got to make sure we, we maybe eat a little bit more so we can make it to the next meal. Mm -hmm. And Alan Satter's works really good where there's defined roles. So the parents are in charge of what the food is, the when part and the where and Mm -hmm. kids are only role is if they're going to eat it and how much. So your role as a parent isn't to get your kid to eat. Mm-hmm. It's to simply let them self-regulate, role model, provide options and that positive eating environment. So yes. those are more ways of like fostering that. And then through that environment you're creating, right? Those family food body values. Yeah. And then for teens, we just add them in there as well. Again, that's when it starts shifting. They're more independent. They're learning more about themselves. Puberty is obviously happening. So having those conversations about growing, changing bodies, maybe they're having more autonomy, packing their lunches, making meals, shopping, that kind of stuff. So giving them that opportunity to explore problem solve, you know, with body self-regulation, with fullness, with hunger. Mm -hmm. And then I think that media literacy is a really big point to that Mm -hmm. kind of group. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Nice. We'll shift into our motivation questions in a moment here, but what would, what are one or two like main messages you really want parents to take away from this conversation? Yeah. So kids are very malleable. If you're feeling stressed and you're feeling like, oh, I've messed it all up, like full stop. You haven't <laughs> self-compassion, making small steps, you know, having that conversation with your child that you're going to change things try something new again is a great lesson for them. I think getting the right support. I think it's really important. Like we said, at the beginning of the conversation, not all dietitians, not all therapists are trained in like this type of modality of intuitive eating and non-diet kind of approach. So 
encouraging you get the right support. There is the intuitive eating counselor directory, and then really trying to focus on the long-term goals, fostering mm-hmm. that competent eater, having them eat diverse meals, you know, getting your kid to be able to sit down at a meal and still be able to navigate that. Right. And really trying to teach them that one of the most essential self-care skills of just feeding themselves. And then I do have another one. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So food, food is connection, love, and nourishment. So I think as parents, we have really high expectations of what, you know, the best healthy diet looks like and literally sitting down, whether it's a takeout meal or a home cooked meal or a combo of both. The most important part is sitting down again, if that's safe for you and your environment, of course, and just enjoying food and enjoying company. That connection is way more important than what food you're actually putting in your mouth. Yeah. I love that. Wait, food is connection. What's the second one? Love and and nourishment. nourishment. Yes. Love that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And so we'll move on to our motivation question. So what is one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior itself, like you enjoy it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Yeah. So I kind of laughed at this one because I am now signing my name off as like diet culture disruptor dietitian. So disrupting diet culture, (laughs) planting seeds of that non-diet paradigm and just really bringing light to how much it stigmatizes and hurts people and hinders people's health. So that gets me really fired up. Yep. (laughs) Nice. I love it. I love it. I haven't specifically had anyone have that answer yet. It's a good one. Next one from a should to a choose to integrated motivation question. So this one's an example of a behavior that was always a should for you that you used to struggle to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it or it's part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Yeah, great. This one was stumped me for a bit. So I think for me, it was getting into my meditation routine. I had such a block with this and it was actually my husband who was constantly being like, let's do this meditation challenge. And I was so defying it always. (laughs) And then (laughs) I think what worked for me was just really managing my expectations of what it should look like. So I thought it had to be like, yoga mat, sitting up straight in the lotus pose, like early in the morning, long periods of time, you know, being uncomfortable, but that didn't work for me. Like I've mentioned, I have kids. It's not always quiet in my house. They're crying, waking me up at all times of the night. So I think for me was really changing those shoulds into like what works best for me being more flexible. So I started with doing like bedtime ones like yoga nidras I really liked guided ones. And then I guess in the last like two years, I've started adding like morning meditations and it's literally the first thing I do hit my inside timer app. And I just, that's, it just changes the whole rest of my day. So that would be my answer for that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So just being able to like have that flexibility of what it like, yeah, not all or nothing with it and taking away the rules about what it should be helped Mm -hmm. to do it, which is true of many things. So I love that. Absolutely. And then finally, a main part of our mission here is to teach women to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live courageous and connected lives. Can you share any examples of living courageously or building connection that you're proud of? 
Yeah. So I think for me, it was developing my podcast. It's called Die Culture Dropout and just really bringing a bigger, um, somewhat of a louder conversation to taking down diet culture. I know I'll never be as shiny and loud as them, but just the community it's gathered and the feedback I've got from people, it's just really validating. And then another part that I've been starting to advocate more around is fat phobia and weight stigma. I reside in a very privileged body and have been taught to through school to further contribute to the stigma. So I think Mm -hmm. just really bringing advocacy to this and educating people like from my perspective, whether it's examples of being out in the community and seeing instances, chairs, you know, medical appointments, shopping experiences, just kind of shedding light to that. Cause I think it's a big area that is overlooked and yeah, a lot of work to be done. A lot of people. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Love it. And so tell people where they can learn more about the work you're doing and connect with you. I know you mentioned your podcast already, but yeah, where can people find you? Of course. So I'm dipping my toe into TikTok everywhere. It's peacefully nourished on Instagram, TikTok, and then my podcast, I culture dropout. And then my website is peacefully nourished.ca because I'm in Canada. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Athena. This was a very fun conversation. I learned a lot and I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to Diet Culture Dropout. If you like today's podcast, I would love for you to leave a review, share the episode with a friend, or subscribe. The more we can collectively break down diet culture, the closer we get to food peace and celebrating all bodies. Thanks for being here.